Morning. How's everybody doing? Okay, all right. Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor here. Hey, anybody ever read the news and after you finish reading the news go, wow, we just live in a fantastic world. <laughs> uh, nobody does, actually, because it doesn't take a genius to figure out that our world is broken. And what I think is really fascinating is you think about the last century. Think about just the sheer amount of development we've had in terms of scientific discovery, in terms of what we discovered medically and health and technology. Who Our lives are totally different now in 2021 versus 1921. And yet our world still feels broken and life still feels really hard. Right? Families are, are broken all over the place. Drug addiction is skyrocketing. The suicide rate is crazy right now. There's racism and sexism. People are divided. They're growing angrier every day. Nobody is looking at the world right now despite all of the developments and going, I just really feel like, anybody want to do kumbaya with me right now? We just don't do that. We sense the brokenness of the world. There is suffering. And how do we interpret as Christians, the fact that there is so much suffering. People want to know the answer to this. The other day, I was <clears throat> looking at my phone, and I was in the app store, and I was just, every once in a while, I just kind of look at, like, what are the top apps? What, what am I missing out on, like, Bejeweled 14 or whatever it is, right? And so I'm looking through the top apps, and I was just blown away by how many of the most popular apps were either meditation or breathing apps. Why is that? Well, it's because life is hard, and people are suffering, but without God's truth, without a relationship with the living God, often the best remedies that people can think of or that they even know of are to work on their breathing or to try and meditate away their difficult thoughts. See, but one of the things that I love about the Bible is that the Bible dives really deep into hard topics. It's not just a book for your emotions, it's a book for your mind. And in the pages of scripture, you'll find well thought out, deep answers to some of life's hardest questions. And so over the next two weeks, so we're kind of in the middle of the series here, what we're going to do is we're going to look hard at the problem of suffering and specifically how the follower of Jesus should interpret that. Uh, if it's your first time here, uh, we are in the middle of this series called God Never Fails, and all we're doing really is we're just walking verse by verse by verse through Romans chapter 8 in the Bible. Uh, Romans is a letter written by a man named the Apostle Paul. Uh, he writes it to some of the earliest Christians in the city of Rome, uh, only about 25 years after Jesus's uh, death and resurrection. So we're going to take a look at the Bible. Uh, everybody grab a Bible. There's a Bible under every chair uh, right in front of you. So go ahead and grab that. We're going to be on page 772. We're going to camp out in it today. So I want you looking at it. Uh, or if you like, I know many of you bring your own Bible, and that is great. Or if you normally read uh, your Bible on your phone, there's a place even to take notes in there. I actually think it's great as you're learning a lot about scripture, it's great if you have a central place that you can take notes. So you can kind of go back to what you've learned. Uh, for some of you, uh, that may just be like a notebook. Some of you write in, you can write in the margins of your Bible that you bring. Uh, or even in our Renovation Church app, if you use the phone, if you go to the messages tab and you go to the individual message, there's actually a space where you can take notes and it'll keep it with that particular message. 
Any of those methods are great, whether you use like a, a notebook with puppies on it or a phone, whatever it is. The fact that you would have notes that then, even for house groups, that you could bring to your group and have what you've learned right in front of you, that, that's a blessing. Okay, I actually want to start on the last verse that we covered last week, and then we looked a little deeper at in house groups during the week, and that's verse 17. So you want to find the big number eight on that page, and then the small 17, that's Romans 8, 17. Here's what Paul said. He said, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And we talked last week in house group about how followers of Christ are going to suffer, but they suffer on the path to glory. And it's that specific topic that Paul's now going to expound on a bit deeper in our passage for today. So we're going to do verses 18 through 25 today. And here's what Paul says. So let's start with just verse 18 now. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, what Paul is actually going to do in these eight verses we're going to study today is he's going to give us context for our suffering, for the hard things that we go through. In fact, he's going to give context in three really important ways, and we just saw the first one. So the first context is this. Number one, that all suffering must be seen in light of our future glory. So Paul is saying that your present sufferings, the difficult things that you're going through right now, whether it's at work or in your relationships, or with your health, friendships, anything like that, your family. He says, our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the greatness of the future glory that's coming. And what is coming? Now, we're going to kind of get into this in detail, but just so I can put it out here in just cliff notes at the beginning. What is coming for the Christian, that is not someone who goes to church, that's one who truly trusts in Christ as their Savior. What is coming is life everlasting, it's joy unending, it's living in a new creation with a redeemed body. And those last two we're going to explain as we go through here. But when Paul talks about suffering and he says, it's not even worth comparing to the greatness, I want you to understand that Paul is not unfamiliar with suffering, um, he's not downplaying suffering. Paul himself is a man of suffering. If you read the book of Acts in the Bible about Paul's life, or even 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which is an interesting chapter, we get kind of a biographical sketch of Paul's suffering, and we're told that Paul was put in prison several times. Five times he was whipped for his faith. Three times he was beaten, once he was stoned, three times he was shipwrecked, he often had to go without food, he was betrayed, he was hated for his faith, and on and on and on. And so it's this man, a man of deep and intense suffering, that says, the weight of our suffering is minuscule when it's rightly compared with the weight of the glory that is coming for the Christian. And so we focus on what's coming. Uh, the, the always brilliant uh, Timothy Keller years ago explained it this way. He said, imagine that there are two rooms, and in each room there is a one person. And your job is to give each of those two people instructions. And you, you go to them and you say, okay, <clears throat> you tell them that they have tasks. Now, both of their tasks, they don't know this, they don't even know there's another person. Both of their tasks are identical. Um, they're menial, boring, 
manual labor. So you walk into the first room and then eventually in the second room and you tell each person that they're gonna be doing manual labor, it's not exciting, and they're gonna do it 80 hours a week in that room. And they're gonna do it for 12 months and in those 12 months they will have zero vacation. So they get started. And you walk into the first room, you say, Lay, looks like you're doing okay. I just want you to know it's going to be 12 months. And at the end of the 12 months, you will be awarded an annual salary of $15,000. Okay, so you walk out, and then you walk into the next room. You tell them the same thing, like, hey, it's manual labor. It's really boring and tedious. But at the end of 12 months, you will be rewarded an annual salary of $150 million. Okay, now think about this. These two people are gonna experience identical circumstances in radically different ways. The first person, after about three or four weeks, honestly, probably more like three or four days, is gonna go, why am I doing this? This is so difficult, it's so boring, it is so hard, I can't do this anymore, I'm out of here, I quit. The second person is probably whistling while they work, right? They're just doing a little, okay, living right. They're just living life large. Why is that? Think about it. It's the same circumstances. So why is it so easy for the second person? Because all of the tediousness, all of these difficulties, all of these trials for them are being seen in light of the future coming glory. And so how people in today's world experience and handle suffering is absolutely shaped by what they believe their ultimate future to be. Does that make sense? This is actually a huge reason why so many people in our culture today live in such despair. Psychiatrist Viktor Frankl once said, one who has a why can endure almost any how. If you have a why, a deep meaning for life, you can endure almost anything. And that's a problem for so many people in society today. They don't have a why, a deep meaning and purpose to their life. Beyond sort of pursuing their own dreams and happiness, right? A lot of people have those. But when it doesn't work out, which it doesn't for so many, right? The, the, the marriage of their dream falls apart, or they have this big career goal and it never happens, or they, they dream their kid was going to become an NBA star, and they flunked out of Division Three basketball or whatever, or got benched or whatever, right? And their dreams didn't come to fruition. For those people, without a deeper why, without a deeper meaning, life then becomes incredibly difficult and for some impossible to endure, context of your suffering and future glory is so important. Now, Paul's going to actually expand on this meaning of future glory a little bit, so we're going to keep reading. So look at the scriptures again. We're going to do 19 through 22 now. He says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's God in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Okay, now, if you haven't read much of the Bible, and I know there's many of you in this room, you're just kind of getting started. You just took a Bible a couple of weeks ago. That's a section of the Bible that you maybe just read and went, I'm sorry, what did you just say? 
Uh, it's kind of tricky. And so I want to make sense of it. This is a Bible teaching church. Our job, our goal is to help the Bible make sense to you. Okay, here's what Paul's saying. We actually have to go back to the beginning of the Bible. So if you go back to Genesis 1 through 3, those are the first three chapters of the Bible, what you'll see is when God created our world, our, our universe and everything in it, it was created as good. Right? There's the Garden of Eden, and everything's perfect. Even the animals somehow live together without devouring one another. There's no pain, no sadness, no want, and God walked among them. But then the devil comes. And he tempts Eve to sin. And she sins along with Adam, and creation begins to crumble. A humanity is then cursed to an imperfect state, and creation is spoiled along with it. Neither are perfect anymore. And the earth is no longer like it was in the Garden of Eden. Now, there are a few places out there still that still speak to the glory of God. Uh, Cambridge, Minnesota is probably one of them. Um, and maybe, that's where I'm from. Um, uh, right, there are places where you see it, but on a whole, the earth is in a state of decay. And so when the Bible says things like this, that creation is decaying, that creation is broken, it isn't just speaking about the imperfections and the decay that's happening in biology or geology. I mean, that's part of it. But it's talking about the imperfections of our world, that it's broken. This is the fact that we have droughts or famine. It's broken. Earthquakes and tornadoes and pandemics and cancer and miscarriages. That's, that's verse 20 where it says the creation was subjected to frustration. It's not in its perfect form anymore. It's broken. And so this is actually, this is really interesting because it's kind of deep stuff, but it's fascinating. This is the second context that we, we need to understand in our suffering. So the first was all suffering must be seen in light of our future glory. But the second one is this. We suffer in part because creation is broken along with us. We live in a broken world. And Paul, like a poet, he personifies creation. He says the creation is waiting, like on its tippy toes, in eager expectation for the restoration, to be restored. And it will be. At the end of human history on earth as we know it, Christians won't actually live in heaven. Did you know this? But they will live in a restored earth. So we were in the beginning pages of the Bible. Let's go to the end. So second chapter from the very end. So this is Revelation chapter 21. The disciple John is having a vision of the end. And here's what it tells us. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, that's going to heaven as you think about it. You know, people die or Christians are in heaven. And the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
Uh, this is what Isaiah the prophet was talking about. Some of you have maybe heard this prophecy before. Where he says, on earth, there will eventually come a time where the lion will lay down with the lamb. The earth is going to be renewed. It's going to be restored to its former state of perfection, as will humanity. And what's really fascinating here is the language that Paul uses then to describe our suffering in our current state. So if you have the Bible on your lap, still look at verse 22. Paul says, the whole creation has been growing as in the pains of childbirth. Okay, this is a really interesting metaphor to think about. And what's really cool is he actually gets this metaphor straight from the teachings of Jesus. So when Jesus himself is talking about the end times, what will come, here's what he says. This is Mark chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus says, nation will rise against nation in the end. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning, what does he say? Of birth pains. The exact same language that Paul uses. And so what Jesus and what Paul are saying is that the struggles of creation, the brokenness of our world, right, the, the pandemics and the earthquakes and wars and famines, that they are birth pains. And the point here, your suffering is not random, it's not pointless, it's not meaningless. On the contrary, it is a birth pain on the way to something glorious, to something beautiful. God never fails. This chapter has always been a part of the story. Okay, now watch. Paul's going to take this same metaphor of birth pains, and he's going to apply it not, to the cre- not just to the creation, but also to us. So look at verse 23 now in our passage, 772. Paul says this. Not only so, so not only does creation groaning in birth pains, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly in these birth pains, right? As we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul's saying, we too, what we're feeling in our suffering, it's birth pain. Okay, this is giving context to your suffering. Context is everything. It's like, okay, let's say that you're in a hospital and you're walking in the hallway, you're going to visit a friend who's sick. And as you're walking in the hallway, you hear a woman scream out in pain. Well, context matters in suffering. Where are you in the hospital? Are you in the ER or are you in the maternity ward? Context to suffering. Where are you? And this is the third context we're given in this passage about our own suffering. So we remember our suffering must be seen in light of his glory. We remember that the creation is broken along with us. And third, we're told, we're taught that our sufferings are birth pains. Paul says you're going to groan. Inwardly, your life is going to be so hard sometimes, you are going to groan in agony and pain. The Bible isn't sugarcoat. You you may be groaning right now in a job that you just absolutely cannot stand, in a marriage that feels like it's falling apart in front of your eyes. You groan in anxiety about whom we can even trust nowadays. You groan about a child who's gone wayward, or chronic pain, or the loss of a loved one. We're going to groan. But what is the context of that groan? Where are you? Where are you headed? Are you just on a path to nothingness? 
Are you just going to suffer, 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 and then you're going to die, and they're going to put you six feet under, and there you will cease to exist? Now, if that's your purpose, if that's your life, then you ought to groan. You ought to groan hard because there is no purpose to your life at all if that's all there is. But Paul says, no, 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 no. That, that is not the groan of the Christ follower. He says, for one, this is kind of his parenthetical in that verse. He says, for one, think about this. You, are, you have the first fruits of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. You have a taste of God in the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that God has set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts. What's one of the reasons you have the Holy Spirit? He says it's actually because the Holy Spirit acts like a deposit, like a down payment guaranteeing what is to come. And so because we have the Holy Spirit, because you can experience God changing you through the Holy Spirit, you can experience God leading you through the Holy Spirit, you experience God speaking his love to you through the Holy Spirit. What that is, it's a, it's a seal, it's a down payment, it's a first fruit, a taste of the eternity that is to come. It's kind of like, I don't know if you have like a favorite TV show or a favorite movie, and let's say a trailer comes out for season two, or the sequel to your favorite movie. You just watch, you know what I'm talking about? You watch like that 90 second trailer, and you finish it, and you're like, Oh man, I'm not going to sleep tonight, right? Because you're just so excited. It's a taste of what's coming. That's what Paul's saying. The Holy Spirit, what we experience here, is just a taste of the glory that is coming. That one day, you won't live in a broken world anymore. It'll be restored. One day, there will be no more wars, no more hate no more pandemics, no more cancer, no more Alzheimer's, or even bodies that even get sick. Right? That's what he says. He says it will be the redemption of our bodies. And what, what the scripture plays out in a number of places, 1 Corinthians 15 is one of these places, that your body is going to be renewed. It's going to be renovated. That's a really good word. Renovated or re- restored to a new thing where it's not going to break down anymore. There'll be in this new place no more loss. No more suicide. No more drug overdoses of family members. No more relationships breaking up. No more fear. No more loneliness. That's one of the things that he's hitting on in this verse. He says, he talks about adoption again because in that restored creation, you get to finally, yes, you're adopted in Christ, but you get to finally feel the full measure of your adoption as you look your father face to face. There will be no more tears. There will be you and your Father God in this beautiful, restored creation, and it will be a billion times better than you can imagine. Do we think about that as Christians? Often we don't. The problem of suffering is suffering gets you laser-focused in on your own suffering. But the scriptures are saying, nope, nope, context, 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 context is everything. And for the Christian, we do not interpret our sufferings as meaningless groans from the ER, but as groans from the maternity ward. This, this is our temporary home. It's difficult, but really it's just a proverbial nine months. And we must remember what this is. And in our groaning, we must remember that the joy is coming and that the joy that is coming is infinitely better than the pains we feel along the way. 
A new day is coming, and we set our eyes on that. And one of the key ways that we set our eyes on that, especially in our suffering, is we look to the one who suffered for us, and that is Jesus Christ. He's not a God who looks at our suffering and goes, oh, I don't really know what that feels like. He suffered for us. And one of the ways that we deeply internalize and remember that is through taking communion. We're told that Jesus, on the night before he died, that he gathered his disciples together for one last supper. And on that night, he gave them a way to remember how much he loved them. The gospel writer Luke explains it this way. Luke 22, he says, And he, that's Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant. That's like a new agreement in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so as followers of Jesus, we follow what he says, and we do this in remembrance of him. You know, taking part of this is something for those who are believers. And so if you're here, there's maybe a couple of you in this room, and you're kind of just learning about God, investigating the Bible, seeking out who he is, uh, don't do this part. Uh, just wait. And that is okay that you're here. We are pumped that you are here. But it's important that those of us who do this part are actually firm believers. We are believers in who Jesus is and that he is the Lord of our lives. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, one of the things I want you to do is you can actually grab, there's a little a communion chalice like this. It's under the chair in front of you. If you're in the front row, it's right under your chair. And I want you to look at the bottom of the chalice and you can pull off the covering uh, to take the bread out. And then I just hold it in your hand just for a second. And I want you to just take a second. And I want you to reflect that even in the midst of your sufferings. Some of you, this has been one of the worst weeks of your life. Even in the midst of your suffering, that your Savior suffered for you so that you could be together forever. Just think about that for a second. The body of Christ was broken for you. Go ahead and take the bread. Now, go ahead and peel back the top of the chalice. Before you take a drink, I want you to again just reflect on a moment, just for a moment, that Jesus Christ knows that what you're experiencing right now is so difficult. He empathizes with our weaknesses, Hebrews says. But he also loves you so much that he let his blood, the scripture just that we just read says, be poured out for you so that you could be together forever. Not in a painful birth pain world like this, but in a restored creation. Just take a moment and think about that. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Go ahead and drink from the cup. And if you would, would you just take the wrappers and stick it in the, the top of the chalice and then you can put it in the little holder in the chair in front of you. You know, friends, it's this deep truth that Jesus Christ died for us 
that gives us hope. And that's exactly what the last two verses say. Let's take a look at them just for a couple of minutes here. Verses 24 through 25, Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now Paul says it's in this hope we are saved. Those who hope and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. They'll spend all eternity with him in this restored creation. And I just wonder, do you have this hope? Can you, in the midst of your suffering, still hope in God and the glorious future you'll spend with him? Because you know that you're saved. And how do you know that you're saved? I mean, this is really the central teaching of Christianity. It's that we are all sinners. Ever since Adam and Eve, this is kind of what we talked about in the, in the book of Genesis. When they sinned, humanity became imperfect, and that includes us. So we sin. And see, if there was somehow a jury that could watch a video of your entire life and all your actions and all your thoughts, and they had to sit through the whole thing, I'm sure it's riveting, but if they had to sit through the whole thing, they would see it all, and at the end of it, they would actually cry out to God the good judge. They would cry out for justice. And God is a good judge. He's honorable. His integrity. And so he believes in justice. But he's also incredibly loving. He satisfies those two things by sending his own son, Jesus, to have his body broken and poured out on a cross. And what Jesus is doing on that cross is he's dying in your place. He's taking the justice, the punishment that you deserved. And the great gift, the great teaching of scripture is that you can be forgiven. You can have a relationship with God. You can spend eternity in this restored creation with him, not by getting your life together. No, you're actually never going to be good enough. But by saying, I believe that you died for me. And so I want to live for you. It's in that hope you are saved. That's what we just read. And so I just wonder, have you made that decision in your life? Because it is a decision. It's not just, well, slowly I'll get my life back together. It's not it. It's, I am making a decision to put my life under the leadership and mantle of Jesus. I will follow him. I believe he died for me. It's not, oh, yeah, I'll, I believe he died for me and I'll go do whatever I want. It's, I believe he died for me and so I will live for him. And it's in that hope, it's in that faith that he washes away all of your sin, forgives you, and you spend eternity with him. That's the decision you make. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm actually going to call our, our worship band back on stage. And what I want to do is we're just going to sing a final song. And as we sing this, I want you to just take a moment and I want you to consider this proposition in front of you. Do you need to make this decision? Maybe you even talk to God about it a little bit. And then I'm going to come back up here at the end of the song, and I will give you an opportunity to make that decision. Okay? And Christians, I would just ask that you pray as well during the song. Okay? All right, let me pray as we get into this last song. Lord, thank you for your incredible uh, word in this letter that Paul penned, that you inspired. Lord, it is really difficult, especially in the midst of suffering, to look outside of suffering. But Lord, give us context. Help us look forward to the future. Help us see our sufferings as what they are. And not from the ER, God, they are birth pains. And the future is coming. 
Give us that focus today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.